Welcome to Enbus Talks, a podcast focusing on business in Singapore and Asia, where we take the lead on innovation, new technologies, and new solutions. Because Norway means business. With your host, Anders Hegre, Executive Director at the Norwegian Business Association in Singapore. Welcome to Endless Talks. Uh, we are going to cover Web 3.0 today, a topic that many of our members have um, wanted to know more about. And uh, with us, we have the best possible people to discuss that. That is Magnus Grimland, uh, founder and CEO of Antler here in Singapore, and also Alex Swanwick, founder and CEO of Nonsen AI here in Singapore. So welcome, and I will give the word uh, to you, Magnus, to lead the conversation. All right. Thank you, Anders. Um, hi, Ron. Great uh, to talk to you again. Um, just Ant- Antler, obviously, is supporting great founders all across the globe in building great new businesses. And uh, through that, we've been supporting uh, a number of founders also building the Web3 space. So um, very, very excited to talk about this topic. And Alex Svanvik here, I think, is probably one of the very best people to do this podcast with because he's been founding this incredible company called Nansen, which is literally, um, uh, you know, doing a lot of analytics on the whole space and and really serving the best investors out there all across the globe um, uh, on getting the right insights into the whole ecosystem. So it's so great to have Alex here. Alex is uh, is is obviously from Norway and. Um, uh, you know, was part of Shipstead before and has now built this incredible business that has grown very, very rapidly. And it's really supported by, uh, you know, most of the world's best uh, uh, tech investors and Web3 investors. So, Alex, very excited to have you here today. Thanks for having me, Magnus. Happy to chat about an interesting topic. Awesome. So, Alex, just to start off, perhaps, um, you know, since, since Nansen is uh, one of the fast-growing Web3 businesses with a strong Norwegian connection, uh, why don't you share a little bit uh, about your company to start with? Yeah, so uh, I guess a quick personal intro. My background is originally in artificial intelligence. I graduated from the University of Edinburgh back in 2010, so quite a number of years ago. I did a few years in management consulting, and then I worked, as you pointed out, at Shibstead for about four years. Um, and at Shibstead, I was based for a while at the Barcelona office and some of the guys there uh, during lunch told me about Ethereum, which is one of the leading blockchains. It's the most used blockchain uh, at this point in the world. Um, and I very quickly fell down the rabbit hole uh, on, on Ethereum. Uh, I thought it was quite fascinating how you can make applications on this network that no one can censor and no one can stop, which I'm sure we'll get into uh, a bit afterwards. Uh, and so um, for me personally, I think discovering that there was this interesting intersection between blockchain and data that I could create value in uh, was the thing that led me to leave Shipstead in the turn of 2017 and 18. I moved to Hong Kong. Uh, I worked for uh, a startup there for a little while. That startup didn't uh, turn out so well. Um, But after about a year, uh, myself, Lars and Evgeny, my two co-founders, decided to co-found Nonsense. Uh, towards the end of 2019. And so to put it briefly, Nonsen is an analytics platform 
which allows crypto investors to, first of all, discover new opportunities. So you might not have heard about a specific NFT collection, which also we'll talk about later, uh, specific tokens and cryptocurrencies. You can discover these through Nonsen because we monitor what actually happens on the blockchain in real time. And you can also perform uh, analyses and due diligence on these specific projects. So people basically use Nonsen to get more informed about what they're investing in. Uh, and we've grown from the three co-founders to about 130 people in two years. Um, and yeah, so it's been quite the journey so far. That's brilliant, Alex. No, big, big congratulations. And, and, and you're really at the forefront of, of this uh, coming out of Norway and also here in Singapore where you live now. And I think we'll get a little bit back to that later, but, but Singapore and Norway has actually been quite a bit at the, the forefront of this. And, there's some great Norwegian companies, like Nonsense, obviously one of them. We have Dune, we have the Norwegian founder of Axiom Infinity and, and a bunch of others. So we'll get a bit back to that later. Um, I think what is fascinating here, and for the people listening, we're, we're actually going to start off with a bit, bit of the basics here. So if you want to kind of get more into what's happening right now, just, just uh, you know, go a little bit forward in the podcast. But we want to start a bit with the basics. And um, what is quite incredible is obviously this technology is quite new. Uh, you know, people have been writing and researching about it for a long time, but in terms of kind of a real world impact is quite new. Um, but over the last, uh, you know, few years, it's it's grown to, uh, you know, $1.5 trillion industry, right? So it's, 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 it's a pretty, pretty, pretty large part of, uh, of the, uh, starting to become a large part of the world economy and, and growing very fast. So I think quite opportune to have this conversation. Um, but... Uh, to go a little bit back, so obviously now, you know, there's there's a lot of terms we're going to go through. Obviously, blockchain on its own, we're going to go through cryptocurrencies, we're going to go through NFTs, DAOs, and DeFi. But to start off at the very beginning, like, could you talk a little bit about the, the history of, of blockchain and, and what the blockchain is in itself, Alex? I think that would be useful for, for the new people listening about this topic to learn about. Yeah, I mean, you could go really far back when it comes to the history of cryptography and the uh, different attempts to create electronic cash or electronic money. But I think most people would start with Bitcoin being the primary uh, blockchain uh, and the first real technology that uh, gained uh, momentum. And so that was effectively launched in 2000 and, and 2009, shortly after the... Um, the great financial crisis. And in many ways, it was a response to the uh, quantitative easing and a lot of the different things that we saw after the great financial crisis. But in short, Bitcoin uh, is a way to uh, trustlessly send value from one party to another without needing any intermediary. So that's a very fundamental concept, which is pretty much um, common for all blockchains, more or less. Um, the idea that you can transfer value from one party to another, no intermediary. Um, Bitcoin, though, is quite limited in that you can essentially only transfer Bitcoins. That's pretty much the only thing you could do. There are some more interesting things you could do in addition. But if we fast forward about six years into 2014, um, you get the creation of Ethereum, which is the next sort of major blockchain. There were other blockchains in between that were created. But Ethereum is different because not only does it allow you to transfer value, say, you know, bitcoins on the network from party A to party B, but you can also create arbitrary applications. So you can create effectively anything that can be created as a computer software. 
you can create on Ethereum. It's not always that convenient to create all sorts of software on Ethereum, but it allows you to effectively create arbitrary applications, deploy them on the network, and then the network will effectively run these applications. So no one can stop them because you have a lot of different entities that are kind of securing this network. Um, and that opens up for a lot of interesting opportunities and, and applications. Uh, so, you know, we'll dive into that a bit a bit later. But for example, if you wanted to have an application where you can borrow and lend money peer to peer, uh, that's something that exists now on the Ethereum blockchain, where you can lock up money, you can get interest on your money, or you can borrow money if you collateralize some other uh, funds. So there's effectively a lot of different financial applications and other forms of applications that you can deploy on Ethereum. Uh, and then, so you can say Bitcoin is kind of generation one, Ethereum, you could argue is generation two. And then you also have some more modern or newer blockchains that have gained popularity in the, in the recent years, like Solana, Avalanche, uh, most recently Terra as well. Um, and so that's how I would view the history, like in, in very broad strokes. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's 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 great, Alex. And um, I think the way to, um, you know, obviously this is not, you know, completely correct, and it's an oversimplification. But you know, if you remember the old kind of feature phones, obviously they they served kind of one purpose. Uh, but now you have the smartphones where you can build a lot of apps in the ecosystem, and Ethereum is really like a major decentralized supercomputer. You can build great things on top of, and these new generation um, protocols are are solving some of the. Uh, the issues with with those protocols related to uh, to speed or or other you know um, complications that uh, that that allows us to kind of build faster and, and, and better applications. So so excited development. Um, yeah, maybe, well, maybe just to yeah, yeah maybe just to inter interject briefly because the thing that got me interested in Ethereum, uh, but not Bitcoin initially, was exactly this idea that you could create applications because I always felt that with Bitcoin, you don't know if you're betting on the wrong horse. Like yeah. you might believe in the blockchain technology, but you're not sure if Bitcoin is the asset that's going to be the world reserve currency. Whereas with Ethereum, the thing that appealed to me was that you could create um, a lot of different applications. And there's a good chance that one of the most popular applications will be created on Ethereum. And because of that, you know, understanding the Ethereum ecosystem felt like a good idea, both in terms of like money and also your own time investment. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Alex, and uh, and, and and good good introduction. Um, now, what Alex is talking about there is is also why I guess we call the whole ecosystem Web three these days because it's really kind of the development of of the new internet. Um, and you know, Web two was the internet as we all know it, and Web three is now this very exciting new ecosystem which creates all types of new opportunities. Um, uh, Alex, obviously. You know, people have heard a lot about crypto and cryptocurrencies. Um, how would you relate kind of that back to blockchain? Because obviously blockchain is, is the technology part and cryptocurrency is one uh, utilization of that technology. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about the difference yeah. and what cryptocurrency is. Yeah, so, um, so actually maybe we can zoom back and use this term Web3 that we mentioned initially as well. Um, so Web 1 was effectively the first version of the internet where uh, Chris Dixon, uh, one of actually our partner at A16Z and someone who's considered a thought leader in the crypto and Web 3 world, has uh, sort of um, described Web 1, Web 2 and Web 3 in the, in the following form. Web 1 was about read. So 
that means you can go on the internet and you can read content. For example, what's on AOL or what's on uh, some internet uh, platform. In Norway, we had SOL, for example, Scandinavia Online. Yeah. Um, but in Web2, you get read and write. So that means not only are you a consumer of information, you also create information. So you go on Twitter, you, you tweet things, you go on Facebook, you post updates, you blog, and so on. That means not only are you consuming information, you're also producing it. So that's read and write. Web3 it, it introduces another verb, which is, so there's read, there's write, and there's own as well. Because in Web2 and Web1, there is no good way that you could actually own digital assets. But if you, for example, look at Axie Infinity, which is one of the games we mentioned earlier that also has a Norwegian co-founder, um, the unique thing about Axie Infinity is that you actually own the gaming assets um, yourself. That means you can take those assets, you can even pull them out of the game, and you can trade them on a marketplace. And so this kind of expands the universe of what blockchains do. It's no longer only about currencies, right? Cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or Ether. Uh, you now get these other types of assets that can be owned, they can be traded. You can use them in different sort of complex financial transactions and so on. So I think that's the thing that when people talk about Web3, they've realized that Web3 is a lot more sorry, crypto and blockchains is a lot more than just financial applications. It's also gaming, it's art, it's uh, sports, it's entertainment. Um, and so so it's it's kind of a broader uh, um, way to understand what blockchains can actually be used for. And it also uh, sort of introduces blockchains as one of the primitives of the internet. Like if you want to own anything on the internet, if you truly own it, you need to do that on a blockchain. You can't rely on some third-party platform that custodies the assets you know you could they could censor it they could seize it confiscate it the only way you can truly own it in a self-sovereign way is if you own an asset that's on the blockchain where no one can mess with the transactions yeah yeah a very good point alex very good point um and just for the people who are listening to alex a16c that's andreas and horowitz which is one of your backers right alex and widely known to be yeah. one of the, the best um uh, Web3 investors out there. Um, so it's so great to see that backing of you. So, so bringing them like one step further from cryptocurrencies to to term that uh, you know people have have heard a lot about lately called uh, NFTs or non fungible tokens. Um, uh, perhaps you can explain you know that that innovation and 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 what makes it different from cryptocurrencies and why it's so powerful. Yeah, I think NFTs. Uh, first of all, it stands for non-fungible tokens. I think both NFTs and non-fungible tokens, these are terms that can be a little bit scary to people. They sound very, very complex, but it's actually really simple. Um, if you consider something like Bitcoin, um, if you have one Bitcoin and I have a Bitcoin, we can exchange those two Bitcoins and it doesn't matter which one you own. This is the property of fungible. So, you know, two assets can be exchanged for each other. However, if I own a house and you own a house, we wouldn't just exchange those two things, you know, for each other. The, the thing is, the house is unique, right? Your house is unique and my house is unique. And so this is the property of non-fungibility, that you cannot just simply exchange them uh, between each other because each single asset or token is unique. And so NFTs, that's really all it means at the end of the day. It means that every token is unique. It has its own identifier. 
It can have different attributes and traits depending on what that NFT is. And so in more concrete terms, if you owned a house, uh, say in the metaverse or in some game that's blockchain powered, that house would be an NFT. If you own a specific character or a pet, like uh, in Axie Infinity, you have these cute animals that you own called Axies. Each of those are non-fungible tokens. Similarly, if you own a piece of art, that artwork is unique, right? It has, you know, different uh, graphics or, you know, it looks different from another piece of art. And so that is also an example of an NFT. And I think um, there are a few reasons why NFTs have become very popular in the last few years. I think the way I like to describe it, if we compare it to cryptocurrencies and decentralized finance more, more broadly, is that if you ask a random person on the street, like, what's your interest rate in your bank? They probably won't know, right? They don't care. Like, why should I care about my interest rate? If you ask them, what's your favorite artist? What's your favorite movie? What's your favorite game? Almost everyone has an answer, or they can at least think of an answer to those questions. So I think it's something that people naturally care more about, entertainment, gaming, culture, art. And uh, NFTs tap into all of that, because if you want to have these unique assets, um, they have to be represented by NFTs. And so it's really just the way for people to own unique assets that are sitting on the blockchain. And um, I, I also sometimes think of like, because some people find it weird that you can trade pictures of a monkey or pictures of a penguin and pay, you know, thousands of dollars or tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars for these uh, JPEGs, like we like to call them. Um, but there are some properties of NFTs that make them a lot more attractive to investors compared to physical objects. And so I was walking past a, a, a luxury shop, the a Bottega Veneta shop here in Singapore um, about a year ago. And I was thinking, you know, how come these bored ape JPEGs are, you know, someone's offering $30,000 at that time to buy one of these. And then you go into Bottega Veneta and you see a handmade bag you know, with, with, you know, decades of history, craftsmanship, and it costs like $6,000, which is also a lot of money, but it's like a fifth of, of that JPEG of a monkey. But then if you, if you think about it from the investor's perspective, the, the monkey, the JPEG has a lot of interesting qualities. First of all, it is durable, right? It's infinitely durable. It will last forever. And so the bag, you buy that, if you want to sell that to someone else later, it might get wear and tear, it might get broken, et cetera. Also, it has 24-7 liquidity. That means you can, you can buy and sell these JPEGs or these NFTs um, online to anyone in the world, you know, and, and like in seconds. If you wanted to sell the Bottega Veneta bag, it would be a lot of hassle to sell it across the world. They would have to trust you that it's real, which leads me to the third point, which is the authenticity, right? The blockchain ensures that this is authentic. You can super easily verify it's the real board ape you're buying. It's not a fake one. Whereas with a bag, you can have really good counterfeits and so on. So there's a lot of interesting properties of digital items that make them more um, appealing to investors. And I think this is these are some of the reasons why they've gained so much popularity. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's, it's a great explanation, Alex. And I think for everyone listening here who's not you know, part of the Web3 ecosystem yet, you know, the, the things we've been talking about up until now and, and also NFTs is very applicable to a lot of industries. Um, and you will see more and more use cases in, in everything that, 
that, that you're working on. So, for example, I have a friend of mine who's, who's running a very well-known liquor brand globally, and they're now selling all of their most expensive liquor with an NFT. So once you've had that, you you start having a collection of, of, of the bottles that you had. And there's another friend of mine who organizes um, uh, this 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 big entertainment venue, and they started selling a bunch of their tickets at, as NFTs. And you know, I think you know, so so there there's you know this this physical interjection here with the um, with the digital world, which will touch a lot of industries. And then for the pure digital industries, it obviously creates a whole new ecosystem and world, right? For example, in in gaming, as we spoke about in the beginning, where you know, the industry in itself is growing very, very fast. And the Web3 part of that industry is growing even faster because suddenly it's not a one-off experience, but you can take some of the properties um, from that ecosystem with you into the future iterations of that ecosystem and into new ecosystems being, being built. So I think it's it's a quite exciting future we're seeing in front of us in the NFT space. Uh, not sure if there's yeah. kind of any other use cases you want to bring up, Alex. Yes, it's funny you mentioned the the liquor brand example because I also remember. Um, so I, I used to live in Scotland, and we would um, if you bought bought a bottle of Lafroy. Uh, I don't know if they still do this, but they used to give you a piece of land with every every bottle. I guess they don't do it with every bottle, but maybe it's some of the older ones. And like clearly, that should be an NFT, right? It would make it much more interesting if you could actually trade those the ownership of those um, pieces of land. So I think. Yeah, I mean, NFTs also in that sense, they have more of a connection with the real world because there's a lot of stuff in the real world that is inherently non-fungible, like land, houses, you know, art pieces. And I think that's another reason why people relate uh, to NFTs more than cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrencies are more 100% digital. You know, they're, you cannot that easily relate to them. They're a bit abstract. Whereas NFTs tend to have counterparties either in the real world or in, in the form of like JPEGs and music and so on that people can actually consume. So, so yeah, I think, I think it's funny though, because with NFTs, many people thought, oh, this is like a small subsection of Web3 and crypto a few years ago. It's very you know, cute and, and all that. But I think a lot of us now are realizing that NFTs are actually the thing that's making crypto really go mainstream. No, it's uh, it's a good point, Alex. Um, so you know, moving on, we could we could go deeper and deeper in NFTs. There's so much exciting things going on there. But uh, moving on to the next kind of topic and area, probably a lot of people heard about, um, but you know, still trying to understand. It's it's DAOs, right, or decentralized autonomous organizations. Can, can you talk a little bit about this concept and 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 why it's a, a very exciting new area? Yeah, um, so there are many different ways to think about DAOs, but I think if you just start with the problem that it's trying to solve, um, there are a lot of uh, types of organizations that are really hard to create uh, and run because they require a large degree of trust. And so let's say, for example, that you know uh, you and I and a bunch of other people, we create this new um, crypto project. And this crypto project uh, is going to have a treasury. Maybe you raise some money and uh, you need to sort of govern and figure out like, how, what do you, how do you spend the treasury? Like, how do you invest in things? How do you decide which initiatives to fund and so on? And so that's one use case for DAOs where there's literally no other way to do it than perhaps to, to vote 
uh, on how to how to deploy funds from the treasury, and um, and so uh, and the voting rights you can think of as being shares that you that are tokens, right? And so these are tokens that you can trade in many cases on the blockchain on uh, exchanges and decentralized exchanges, and so if you have you know you own let's say 10% which is not that common but let's say you own 10% of all of the tokens in a DAO then you effectively have 10% of the vote of what you're going to allocate the treasury to and so it's not only about treasuries though it's also about certain parameters right so let's say that we have an exchange which is running on ethereum and the exchange allows people to trade different assets but perhaps we want to have a fee such that um, a part of every trade uh, gets accumulated to the treasury. Maybe we introduce 0.1% trading fees, right? But then the question is, how big should the fees be? Who sets the parameter of it being 0.1% or 0.2% or maybe you don't have a fee at all? And so the DAO is there to decide you know, what that parameter should be. And it, that's just one example. There are lots of other applications which, which have these parameters and really the only way you can decide what the parameter should be is through the vote. And the vote, of course, needs to come from people who have a vested interest in that project. And those are the token holders. So it's it's very, very similar. I think conceptually, it's not the same thing, but it's similar to, in many cases, to shares in a company where maybe you, you vote on certain decisions. Um, but the unique thing about it compared to, say, the the traditional world is that the voting and the outcome of the votes all of that happens on the blockchain um yeah. and so so you get this immutable record of how people vote and interestingly the votes can also trigger actions on smart contracts so now we're maybe going a little, little bit fast down the rabbit hole but Great. these app these applications right that that uh, for example the, the parameter of the exchange in a properly sort of um configured DAO, you and I and the other people owning tokens, when we vote to set this fee to be 0.2%, ideally the vote should automatically set the fee. You don't have to trust the third party to actually switch on the fee. And so that's the cool thing that the voting is actually directly programmatically, programmatically connected to the smart contracts, the applications on the network. So and then, so this is now I'm explaining it in, in terms of like how it should be in, in an ideal world. In practice, many people create more sort of gray area DAOs where there is some degree of trust and maybe not everything is programmed, uh, you know, from end to end. There's some human element in it. But at the end of the day, that's how I would describe it. These are organizations that effectively are digitally native. They exist on the blockchain. And in, in an ideal world, they function autonomously through votes and smart contracts being changed with the parameters being changed based on the votes. Yeah, it's a very exciting area and obviously emerging. Um, now, some of the automation of these also have, have, have made it you know, difficult in the beginning for, for some of them to get off the ground because if you make an error, <laughs> then uh, oh, yeah. that can be exploited. Uh, yes. But, that's very so true. there's been like some really great examples of this working really well, and then there's been some bad examples where, um, you know, perhaps you could kind of give a couple of those examples where automation is. Uh, yeah, I mean, one 
one major challenge when you develop smart contracts is that when you deploy the smart contract onto the blockchain, like on Ethereum, for example, you cannot easily, I mean, you cannot really roll it back. And so the application is there. If it has a bug, you can't just stop it. You can't just halt it, right? So, so that means that if you discover that, let's say there's a smart contract, and by the way, when I say smart contract, that's just an application. So there's, there's a piece of code that runs on Ethereum. Uh, that piece of code could actually hold, it could custody money, right? So let's say there's uh, $100 million in that smart contract. And then some clever person figures out that there's, a, there's an error in the code, which allows you to drain um, that contract. And you can sort of maliciously interact with the contract and actually drain the funds. And this, this happens occasionally, which kind of shows how early uh, this, this space is. But it's just an inherent property of, of um, smart contracts and blockchains that you deploy them, they're immutable, you can't really change them. And uh, you know, what people try to do to mitigate this is that they, they have smart contracts go through audits. So you have an auditing firm that will look at the code, they will battle test it, they will run simulations on it, and they will see what happens under certain stress conditions. And once it's passed maybe one or two or three audits, that's when you actually deploy it on the blockchain. And then you have this sort of stamp of approval from one of the auditing firms saying that it's been battle tested. But at the end of the day, what mostly matters is just how long a smart contract uh, has been on the blockchain without getting hacked. That's kind of the safe uh, safety indicator that you'd look at. Yeah, exactly right. Which is you know one of the reasons why you know also Ethereum is getting so much um, you know attention and activity. Um, um, hey, hey, Alex. Moving on to the to, to the kind of last area, uh, DeFi or decentralized finance. Um, can you talk a little bit about that area in relation to everything we discussed so far? Yeah. So decentralized finance, in a way, is kind of I would think of it as almost core financial services or core banking services, but on the blockchain. So uh, I think one project that's worth looking at is Compound, Compound compound.finance. This was, uh, I would say, one of the pioneering projects. Uh, I think they released uh, the protocol uh, late or around 2019, which in many ways was the beginning of DeFi. And in fact, the term DeFi or decentralized finance was, was actually coined, I think, shortly after Compound was created. But what Compound does is effectively it allows you to deposit money into Compound, into a smart contract. And then other people can borrow that money on the other side if they have collateralized uh, some, some funds. So this is very analogous, again, to how, say, a mortgage might work uh, in the real world. So when you get a mortgage, you collateralize your house. You tell the bank that they can take the house as security, and then you can borrow money against the house. So imagine instead of the house, you have, a th- you have Ether or you have Bitcoin. And so you're mortgaging uh, your cryptocurrencies. So I'm putting, you know, let's say $100,000 worth of Ether, the native currency of Ethereum. I put it into Compound, and this allows me to borrow money against the Ether uh, in another currency. And so, for example, maybe I really believe in Ethereum long term, so I don't want to sell uh, Ether. I want to just hold on to it. That's kind of my life savings or something like that. But you might want to uh, have some liquidity once in a while, meaning you might want to um, 
maybe spend some money to make either an investment or you know a, a purchase. So you borrow, say, ten thousand uh, dollars worth of money. So you've locked up a hundred thousand, and now you borrow ten thousand, and then you are paying an interest rate on that ten thousand dollars, and the interest rate goes to the person on the other side who has been depositing their funds, and also. Uh, the ether that you locked up, some portion of that can also be lent out to someone who wants to borrow ether. So you create a money market. That's effectively what it is, where where borrowers and lenders can meet. But the cool thing is that everything is happening through a smart contract on the blockchain. So you don't have uh, humans sitting there and uh, and assessing: Are you eligible to get a loan? Uh, you know, are you eligible? Everything happens trustlessly through smart contracts on the blockchain where you can just lock up your funds. And if you have locked up your funds, you can't get the funds out again until you pay back your loan, right? That's how the, the application has been programmed. And then the natural question is, what happens if I lock up $100,000 and I borrow maybe $50,000 worth of you know dollar pegged uh, coins? What happens now if the price of Ether goes down? Right, because that would be a concern that you would risk uh, getting an insolvent um, money market. And what happens is that as you get to a certain threshold, Compound will automatically liquidate funds to make sure that you're always you always have enough money in the in the in the platform or in the protocol to uh, to pay out whatever people have put in uh, in assets. So it's it's really and this is truly autonomous, right? And just like we talked about DAOs earlier, Compound has its own set of parameters, right? And these parameters are set by the comp token holders, the ones who own a share of the Compound protocol. So all of this stuff fits together, but effectively decentralized finance just means you can run these core financial services on the blockchain and you have applications now that do this stuff. It's not like science fiction or a white paper. It actually is used with tens of billions of dollars um, right now and anyone can log in you don't need to go through like kyc or anything like that anyone with a crypto wallet can start using these applications yeah it's it's, it's quite incredible and obviously adds a lot of power to unique system as depth is you know big big part of uh, any kind of financial system so it's so great to hear um it just just kind of wrapping wrapping up uh, over the next few minutes i think there are a couple of things um that would be important to touch on. One is obviously Norway and Singapore. Um, you know, Norway has some incredible uh, uh, Web3 founders and Singapore has become a hub for, for a lot of Web3 activity. Perhaps talk a little bit of that um, as we're on the Norwegian uh, Singaporean Business Association podcast. Yeah, um, I think Singapore has a unique opportunity to become the crypto hub in Asia. Um, I think I have to admit one year ago when I moved here, I was a little bit more hopeful that they would take a stronger stance to become that hub. And so I would expect I back then I expected Binance and FTX to set up headquarters here. At at the end, we, we know what happened. They they for various different reasons, they did not set up headquarters here, which is a little bit uh disappointing in my in my view. However, I think I still think that Singapore has a unique chance to become a hub for crypto. Uh, it, it's one of those places where East uh, meets West. You have a really nice uh, mix of startup culture and startup community here and tech community, as well as financial community, uh, which is different from Hong Kong, for example, where you primarily have finance. You don't have that much startup and tech. 
right? Um, and so I think I think Singapore is uniquely positioned. And then I think uh, when it comes to uh, Norway, uh, I think I have to say, you know, Norway as a country is not as founder friendly for various different reasons. Um, I mean, you could argue argue I guess both ways on on how early you want to start thinking about the entrepreneur and the, the, the founder's journey. Um, but there are some really good founders um, coming out of Norway. We we talked about uh, Alex from Axie Infinity. There's Mats and Frederick from from Dune who also worked at Shipstead same time as me. Actually, Mats yeah. was was in was in my team uh, back yeah. in the day, uh, so we worked very closely together. Um, there are also a few smaller ones. Um, there's one called um, uh, Presale, which is quite interesting. That's focused on making it easier to do. Uh, race fundraisers. Um, there's also, of course, Fiery, which is the leading Nordic crypto exchange, which has just sailed up to become super, um, super popular over the last two years. So I think there are a lot of Norwegian uh, founders. I'm curious to see, though, how easy or hard it will be for companies to be based in Norway versus being based in, say, Singapore uh, or other uh, jurisdictions where you have a bit more you know, business friendly and, and entrepreneur friendly uh, conditions. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, for me, I just always like living uh, abroad. I've lived abroad since 2015 and also before that in Italy and, and Scotland. Um, so it's a little bit of a coincidence that I ended up in Singapore. But I do think that we have a unique chance here to become the leading crypto hub in Asia and then potentially one of the top three crypto hubs in the world. Oh, that's great to hear, Alex. And, and um... You know, we're running out of time, but but perhaps kind of 30 seconds on the future. Obviously, it's been growing incredibly fast, the ecosystem. We all know that there's been serious volatility. Um, but what I find quite exciting is that, you know, obviously that volatility is, is hard for some people to deal with, but the, the underlying core technology and infrastructure is just getting better and better every day, which for me, you know, leads to me being very excited about the future of Web3. I would love to get your like 30 second view on the future. Yeah. I mean, I think you'd naturally get these kind of booms and bust cycles, which is a combination of human emotions and herd behavior, as well as structural, um, structural economic forces like liquidations and, and people going too long, let's say, um, with their assets, right? So you, you have natural booms and bust cycles. But if you if you zoom out and you think about the trajectory we're on, to me, it's. I think you know, five to ten years from now, we're going to look at games, and we're going to think it's crazy that you couldn't own the assets in games before, right? That just seems to me now. If I play a, a game where I, you know, earn some badges or trophies, if I can't trade them or like pull them out of the game, it it feels kind of silly after you've you've kind of tasted the forbidden fruit of NFTs. So I think that's in the long enough uh, time horizon, NFTs are going to be massive. Uh, and similarly with decentralized finance in particular, if you've seen how Compound works, it just seems silly to do this stuff manually. Like, why don't we just do all of this stuff with smart contracts? You know, it's way, way more efficient. You don't yeah. need to have necessarily like massive headquarters and tons of people moving paper around, right? Like you can just do this autonomously and with, with code. So I think, you know, if you if you zoom out long enough and you're in it for the long run, I think you're going to be fine. But, you know, obviously you should, be responsible and not go too crazy on any of the investments yeah. in crypto. Yeah, no, completely agree, Alex. No, I, I, sh I share your view on, on, on the future there.
So so with that, Alex, you know, really want to thank you for for your time. It's uh, I know you're incredibly busy uh, building a great business. Um, how can people follow Nansen, and how how do people best follow you? Like, wh- where are you most active? Uh, what's your yeah. website? What's your what social media accounts do you use? So on. Yeah, so people can go to nansen.ai to try uh, the product. It's we have a free version of the product as well, and if you like it, you can you can upgrade. You can also follow me on Twitter, a Svanavik, um, which is my handle. Look for a penguin, and uh, you can also follow Nansen underscore AI on Twitter. Excellent, Alex. That's that's great. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Over to you, Anders. Yeah, thank you, Alex, and thank you, Magnus. Wildly educational. Um, a couple of questions that sort of uh, were developing in my head uh, when I heard this uh, was, um, and uh, maybe I'm just launching us into another podcast, we, which we can also make. But um, what kind of implications does this have on finance? On sort of, does it have democracy implications? Is it the distributions of power? Um, yeah, there's all kinds. So, what does this really mean? Uh, mm. Is there any? Yeah. Do Magnus also maybe you want to 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 reflect just just a minute on this, and and then we might make some more on that later. Yeah, may, maybe I'll just share quickly my my quick thoughts. Of course, I I do think it merits almost another episode to dive into that. But I think one analogy you could make is just to look at the internet. And for example, newspapers, right? I used to work at Shibstead, which is uh, the owner of Often Boston and uh, Vega, VG, um, and many other uh, companies in Norway. And they went through a very interesting journey uh, going digital, right? In the late 90s and early 2000s, they launched uh, Finn, the biggest marketplace uh, in March 2000, I think. And uh, they had two choices. Either they could see someone else disrupt their business or they could disrupt their own business. And so I think the finance industry, the traditional finance industry, will face a similar dilemma. They can choose to embrace it or they can choose to see uh, others disrupt their own business. So I think at the end of the day, the technology is just vastly superior compared to the solutions that you see, which in many cases date back to like the 90s and the 80s, right? If you look at the back end of a bank, and I've worked in a bank as a consultant, it's pretty messy on the back end. Um, if you re- would replace that with, say, DeFi and blockchains, um, you just have wildly, a wildly more efficient and more scalable infrastructure in many ways. Not in all ways, but in some ways. Um, so I think that's the analogy I would make with newspapers going digital. I think we'll see a similar thing with traditional finance. And I completely Thank you, agree. I completely agree. And um... I mean, it's a general trend you see, uh, and the, the the Web3 space is just the kind of latest and, and one of the largest forces in that space right now. But if you look 50 years back in time, um, and you looked at the fi- the world's 500 largest companies, on average, they had been the 500 largest companies for half a half a century. So they were more than 50 years. More for more than 50 years, they've been one of the world's largest companies. If you look at the world's largest companies today, the 500 biggest ones. Uh, on average, they only been uh, the world's largest for twelve years, <laughs> and and that that is just kind of that disruption is increasing. Um, and I think the point Alex made um, about and I think any business needs to ensure that a part of the business is working on working hard on disrupting itself. And in the short term, that's going to lead to um, you know some 
some reduction in margins and other effects. But over the long term, it's going to make you the winner and, and not some someone else. So I think anyone who's not who's in the financial space and, and and a ton of other spaces who are not looking deep at Web three right now need to need to do so, um, or you're going to get disrupted. All right. Thank you so much uh, to Alex Vanvik, um, CEO of Nansen AI, and uh, to Magnus Grimland, founder and CEO of uh, Antler. A great conversation. We are so proud to have you as part of the Business Nerd Network in uh, in Singapore. And um, yeah, so uh, and thank you for everyone listening to us and follow us on www.nbas.org.sg for more events and insights. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Enbus Talks a podcast from the Norwegian Business Association in Singapore with your host, Anders Hegre. To find out more, go to envas.org.sg and join us for our next podcast shortly.